0: Our great Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you for your word, and we remember that your word will not return void to you, that your word accomplishes your purposes, that you have sovereignly ordained. And Lord, as we come to your word today, we come as people who are hungry and who need nourishment for our souls. And so we pray that you would nourish us today. We pray that you would give us a fuller understanding of who you are in Christ Jesus. So use this time, Lord, to accomplish your purposes, to teach us, to convict us, and to grow us for your glory in Christ's name. Well, if you have your Bible with you, uh, please turn to John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. John chapter 1. Uh, we'll be starting our study of one of the deepest and richest and, and most loved uh, books in all of Scripture, and that is, of course, the Gospel according to John. We'll be starting that today, actually digging into the text it was Martin Luther who noted that, uh, that you could destroy every Bible on the face of the planet, but if you just had one copy of John, the Gospel according to John, and one copy of Romans, Christianity would continue to flourish. And one of the things I love so much about this book is that it is just saturated with grace. Uh, it is filled from beginning to end with so much grace John has this type of gentle firmness, and maybe you've seen it in a believer. He has this gentle firmness that, uh, that, that is gentle, but it, it knows where to draw the line. And it's a gentle firmness that's produced only by the work of God in a person's life. If you remember, when Mark introduces us to the disciples, uh, he notes for us that James and John were brothers, and this is the John that, that wrote this text, Uh, James was his brother, and as Mark introduces them, he introduces them as uh, the Sons of Thunder. That's the nickname that Jesus had given them, the the Sons of Thunder. And the name can can probably be connected to the time in Jesus' earthly ministry in which uh, some people in Samaria heard that Jesus was coming, but because he would be continuing to Jerusalem, they hardened their hearts against him and would not receive him. Uh, We read this in Luke's gospel testimony, uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 54. When the days were approaching for his ascension, that is for the, the ascension of Christ, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem." When his disciples James and John the John who wrote our our text when the when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, "Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them and in one sense that that is just like the funniest thing you know that, that this that they want to bring they want to bring hell down on these people to punish them for not receiving christ and and it's just so extreme it makes it a little bit humorous, but at the same time we have to acknowledge that these guys are lacking in grace they're lacking in grace and compassion so how does somebody go from wanting to bring hell to earth to punish these people to being just so filled with grace to being the type of person who attempts to lovingly persuade those same types of hard-hearted people hard-hearted unbelieving people how do you how do you make that journey And the answer is just the grace of God, the grace of God working in the believer. That's the only answer. In fact, John was so greatly changed over the course of his lifetime that based on what he wrote, theologians now commonly refer to him as the apostle of love because John uses the word love in its various Greek forms throughout his writings no less than 80 times 80 times he refers to love. But there is one word that John uses more than the word love, and that is the word believe. Believe. And in this book alone, he uses the word believe 85 times. 85 times. And that's a good reminder for us, isn't it? It reminds us of the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is found at the end of chapter 20 where John writes to us. He says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of this entire book. Now, if you've been through college, uh, maybe you can relate to what John is, is doing here, what he does throughout his book Uh, I still remember the first uh, English class I had in college, uh, which was the first semester of my freshman year, and we had to write essays. We had to write a lot of essays, and after the first essays, the professor let us know that we were pretty bad at writing essays, but he told us that the way to write an essay is that you state your thesis, you prove your thesis, and then you restate your thesis. In other words, tell me what you're going to tell me, then tell me what you wanted to tell me, then tell me what you told me. And to this day, I still remember that formula, which is why I often, uh, almost always, start off a sermon by telling you guys what the thesis is. It's why I tell you guys, you know, the, the central point of the passage is this. It's because I'm telling you what the thesis is, and that's exactly what John does in his book. He does it kind of in his own way, but from beginning to the end of this book, he wants us first and foremost to believe that Jesus is God. And that in believing this, we may have life in Christ. And the point of, of what John uh, begins, and, and that's the point of, uh, of, of this first passage that John starts his book with. But when you draw these words, believe and love together, what we understand is that the point of this passage is that if we believe that Jesus is truly, fully God, then he alone is fully worthy of of our love and our highest and deepest and fullest devotion and obedience. If we believe that Jesus is truly fully God, then he alone is worthy of our love and highest, deepest, fullest devotion and obedience. There's the thesis, see how that works? So while Matthew and Luke, uh, when they're talking about the origins of Jesus, they they go all the way back to his virgin birth, which is a good place to start. Uh, But John goes back even further. He goes back to the beginning. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. John writes, John uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now you might have noticed that these are the only two verses that we're going to be covering today, uh, which doesn't mean that this study is going to take us 20 years. Uh, it, it's just that there is so much packed into these two verses that you could, you could make a, a whole series just based on these two verses. These two verses are two of the richest verses in all of Scripture when it comes to developing what a theologian or a philosopher might call a biblical uh, Christology, which is just another way, a fancy way, I guess, of saying that these verses, these two verses, reveal just an incredible and an enormous amount of information about Jesus, much of what we know and believe about Jesus is either referred to here in these two verses, or it's, it's just supported uh, by these two verses. But John's thesis for his entire book and for these, these two verses right here, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He wants us to believe that and to show us that right off the bat, He takes us back to the beginning what he refers to as the beginning. Now, that should prompt us to ask a question. The beginning of what? The beginning of his earthly ministry? The beginning of his life? The beginning of the Roman occupation of Israel? The beginning of what? Well, the answer is back to the beginning of of everything. Uh, we just finished up our study of Genesis, and we know, we, re- we remember, and it, the, the verse is very famous, G- uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 starts with very similar words, extremely similar words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is using that uh, to, to parallel, to show us uh, something about Jesus here. But what we read in Genesis 1-1, that, that in, in itself is a, a, is a profound statement, isn't it? But John actually takes us back earlier than Genesis 1 1. Genesis 1 1 is not the earliest point in the Bible. This is. John 1 1 is the earliest point. In the Bible, John takes us back before the virgin birth. He goes back before the promise of redemption in Genesis 3, before the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, when sin entered into creation. He goes back before Genesis 1 1, where we read about the creation of the heavens and the earth. He takes us all the way back to eternity past, prior to anything being created, prior to there being anything but God. All there was was God. And the reason that John takes us back to the earliest point in all of Scripture is to make it immediately clear who Jesus is. It's to tell us what or who was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And this Word existed before creation, which tells us the first thing that we need to understand about Jesus. And that is that His origins are in eternity, before time. Before space existed, before matter existed, even before the laws of nature were set in motion, the Word was there. Now you might say, how do you know that the, the term Word? Uh, refers to Jesus. And that's an excellent question. Uh, If you're asking that question, or if you've ever asked that kind of question, I, I say kudos to you, because that's the question I think John wants us to be asking. And it's partially answered. Look down at verse 14. In verse 14, John says this. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The word is Jesus. That's This whole book is about. See, the word is is a person, a person whose glory was personally seen by John and by the other disciples. That person was Jesus. That's who this whole book is all about. That's who the the gospel according to John is, is all about. This book is a testimony of Jesus stepping out of eternity, taking on flesh dwelling among the disciples and revealing his glory to them. Jesus is the Word. And Jesus, the Word, was there when the beginning happened. So if Jesus was there when the beginning happened, that tells us that he was also there before the beginning. When the beginning happened, he was already there. And this means clearly that he existed prior to the creation of, of anything and of everything. Verse 3 is actually going to tell us that this word, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has created all things and that apart from him, nothing that has come into being has come into being. It's all through the Word. It's all through the Lord, Jesus Christ. But so, so here's an answer to the, to the question that you might get, parents. Uh, okay, if, if God made everything, who made God? Or, or you get atheists asking that, that kind of question, too. And the answer is found here. Nothing and nobody made God. Everything that has been made was made by God but nobody made God. So really, to, to, to ask who made God is the same as asking who created the uncreated one who created all things. John's telling us that if we want to know who Jesus is, it has to start with this. It has to start with taking your imagination back to eternity. We can't grasp it. All we can do is, is try Try to force our imaginations back. We can't grasp it, but that's where Jesus is. He dwells in eternity when all that existed was God because God has eternally, has always existed. He did not come into being. He has always been. John is not inviting you to believe and find life in a Jesus who came into being at some point. Now that means that if you believe what the Mormons profess. It's a false Jesus, because that Jesus was created. It means that if you believe in the Jesus that the Jehovah's Witnesses profess, it's a false Jesus, because he was created. If you believe in the Jesus that Islam affirms, it's not the real Jesus, because he's not God. All of these groups affirm a Jesus who is a created being. But with the first few words, just a few words in this book, John wants us to know that the Jesus that he's talking about, that the biblical Jesus, is a, a Jesus that comes from eternity past, who has no beginning or end, who is the Alpha and the Omega. So use your imagination and go back in time as far as you possibly can imagine. And the Word is there. Jesus is there. Stare into the depths of space and... and, and assume just hypothetically that uh, it looks like it goes on forever and yet the existence of Christ is infinitely greater than even that write a number one on, on the biggest wall that you can find and put as many zeros as you possibly can each one representing a year and Jesus was there even before that however far back your imagination can possibly wander The Lord Jesus is there. He's timeless. He's eternal. He did not come into creation at the beginning. He was already there at the beginning. If you're going to know Jesus and believe in Him and find life in Him, if you're going to love Him, if you're going to obey Him, it starts right here. It starts with what John is revealing about Jesus right here. It starts with understanding that Jesus is eternal. Now you might wonder, like I did, why does John refer to him as the word? I mean, it it seems kind of strange. It it seems maybe poetic um, that he would use the word word uh, to refer to Jesus. Why didn't he just come out and say, in the beginning, Jesus was there? Uh, and I think that's a fair question. I'm not sure that there's any kind of consensus uh, among scholars or, or pastors or theologians, um, but keep in mind that John has, uh, has already created something of a parallel to the book of Genesis, right? By saying, in the beginning, that's a parallel to Genesis. Uh, but what happened in the beginning, back in Genesis chapter 1? God created, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? With his word. He spoke, and things existed. And given that verse 3 tells us that his word, the Lord Jesus Christ, created all things that have come into being, it seems to me that the most probable reason that John refers to him as the word is because he's drawing another parallel to Genesis 1. But beyond that, Um, how does God reveal himself? Through his word, right? We can know something about God in creation, but we can't know enough to be saved by what we see in creation. In the Old Testament, uh, how did the people know what God's will was? By his word. How did they know what pleased God? By his word. Uh, What does all this have to do with Jesus? Remember what Jesus said Uh, about the scriptures to to uh, to the scribes and Pharisees, what he'd said about the Old Testament. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So the word reveals God. And Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Jesus tells us what God is like. And Jesus shows us what god is like he is the fullest expression of god's character in all of its fullness which is why when philip said you know lord just just show us the father and i'll i'll be good you know i'll I'll be content with that and jesus turns to him and says how can you say that how can you have been with me for so long and and ask that question because whoever has seen me has seen the father And this person, who is the fullest expression of God's character, was in the beginning. He was there in the beginning. He is eternal. Now, because the Word is eternal, and because the Word is uncreated, One would have to think that Jesus either is God or that he was with God. And John wants us to understand that that's a false dichotomy to say it has to be either or. It's both and. Both are true of Jesus. Not only was he with God, but he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he is God, and he dwelt with God in eternity past. And of course, when we read this in the fuller context of Scripture, we realize that John is making a distinction here between the Son and the Father. And uh, that's, a, that's a distinction that will become increasingly clear throughout this book until it becomes an unavoidable distinction when you get to uh, chapter 17 you remember in, in chapter 17, this is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. It's when Jesus, uh, the night before he's betrayed, he's praying to the Father, right? We call that his, his high priestly prayer. So within the, the first verse of this text, John has introduced his audience to not only the fact that Jesus is eternal, but he's also introduced us to the doctrine of the Trinity, which is that God is one, but that there are three persons in the Godhead. God is one being, one in being, one in substance, one in nature, while existing as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And if you don't make this distinction, if you don't understand that there's a distinction of persons within the Godhead, there are instances in which it will be absolutely impossible to make any sort of sense of the text. For example, when Jesus is giving his high priestly prayer, if there aren't three persons, then Jesus is just praying to himself. What sense does that make? Or or in Matthew, when Jesus is being baptized and the Father says from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy, Holy Spirit descends like a dove. If, if these are just three manifestations of God, not three persons, how do you make any sense of what's going on there? You really can't. No, you have to make the distinction between the persons in the Godhead. One well-known teacher who denies the doctrine of the Trinity is a man named T.D. Jakes. Any of you guys heard of T.D. Jakes? He's famous but he's a heretic. He's not a Christian. He denies the Trinity. If you go to his church website, as I did uh, on uh, on Wednesday of this past week, and and look at their doctrinal statement, this is what they say about God. And if you don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, it's very easy to get lost here. Their their, uh, doctrinal statement on their website says this, there is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect, So far, so good, right? And eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the same person manifesting himself in three different ways. That's what manifestations are. And T.D. Jakes has been confronted about this, and he has refused to repent. The doctrine of the Trinity does not affirm that there are three manifestations of God. It affirms that there are three persons within the Godhead. This is a heresy uh, that T.D. Jakes holds to, an ancient heresy called modalism. A modalist would explain the nature of God, for example, by saying that God is like water. Uh, you've probably heard this. It's a, it's a heresy. Uh, they, they would say, you know, uh, God can be liquid or solid or gas. Those are three different manifestations of water, Right? but those things aren't one. They can't be one simultaneously. Can you have have a a single molecule of water that is ice and steam and liquid all at the same time? No, you can't. So it's a heresy. That is a heresy. Uh, Another common heresy is that people will say that God is like an egg. Uh, You know, you have the, the outer shell, then you have the white part of the yolk, then you have the yellow part of the yolk. But again, This illustration falls apart because those things aren't one. Okay, they make one egg, but you can have yolk apart from the shell. They they aren't the same substance. They don't serve the same purpose. They are completely different. They can exist apart from one another. That is not the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity employs very specific language. God is one in being, God is one in substance. God is one in nature, but he exists as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Not manifestations, not parts, no, they are three persons. There are distinctions between them, and yet they are one. And no, your mind is finite, and it cannot completely comprehend this, but it's not a contradiction, it's not a contradiction, and that's what people will say. They'll say, well, that, that sounds like a contradiction when Mormons are talking about their God. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different gods. They're talking about tritheism, not the Trinity. No, this is, this is a distinction that we need to understand. They're, these are three persons who are one in being, one in essence, one in nature. It would be a contradiction to say that God is one person and three persons. That is impossible. That is impossible but it's not a contradiction to say that God is three persons who are co-eternal in being substance and nature in the Godhead. And what John wants us to see here is that believing that Christ is fully God is the foundation for all that we believe about Christ. This is why he starts with this, that Jesus is fully God. Because your understanding of Jesus has to start with that. Any other view, and it's not the Jesus that John is telling you about. He's the, this is the foundation for all that we believe about Christ, and Christ is the full revelation about God. So if we can't understand Christ without understanding that he's fully God, we certainly can't understand anything about God without understanding that Christ is fully God. And John wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand that each of those persons is fully God. In the beginning, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, was with God and was God. If you're going to believe in the biblical Jesus, if you're going to find life in His name, which is the only way to find life, by the way, you must get this right. You must get this right. You must know that he is eternal. And in eternity past, he was with God and was himself very God. That means that what we can say about God, we can say about Jesus and vice versa. What we can say about Jesus is fully true about God. When you think about all the, all the attributes that are revealed in the Bible about God, that he's holy, right, that he's righteous, uh, that, that, that God is love, but also that God hates sin, uh, that he's sovereign over all things, that he's perfect and just in all of his ways, that he knows all things. These are all things that you can say about Jesus. All of these attributes, Jesus has them. So much for the idea that Jesus was, I don't know, just a hippie who was like 2,000 years ahead of his time, right? I think people have this idea that Jesus was, uh, was very unlike the God of the Old Testament, that Jesus was just a peaceful guy who, who really just wanted to, to teach people how to love each other. His message was just love one another, and that is not the Jesus of the Bible, The Jesus of the Bible is fully God, and he has all of the attributes of God. Jesus is fully God, and if we believe that Jesus is fully God, then we have to also understand and believe that he alone is worthy of our love and highest, deepest, and fullest devotion and obedience. That when it says that God hates sin... It means that Jesus hates sin. And when it talks about the day when God will judge all sin and destroy sinners, Jesus is the same thing. You can't make a distinction there. It's the same God. Jesus has all the attributes of God that we find in the Old Testament. But when you have this understanding of Jesus and when you love Jesus the kind of love that he deserves because he's fully God. Listen, everything in your life falls into place. That doesn't mean that you'll have an easy life. It might mean that your life will become more complicated. There might be things that come against you that will teach you, that God will use to teach you to have a greater faith. There will be things that we care about very much. We will care about obeying him. We will care about worshiping Him rightly. We will want Him to be glorified and exalted in our lives. But here's the thing. If you try to be obedient to God without believing in Christ, without without loving, without having a loving belief in Christ, you're going to get about as far as a car that has no gas. I mean, maybe you'll run on fumes for, for five seconds, but you're not going to get anyplace. So John says something very interesting in his first epistle. He says in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, he says this, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So you can't have one without the other. You can't claim to have God without having Christ. This is why it's so important that we understand that Jesus is the fullest expression, the ultimate revelation of God, because without Jesus, you don't have God. You can't have the Father. Without Jesus, one does not know, and indeed they they cannot know the Father. A person who does not believe in the Jesus that we see here cannot claim to know the biblical God. And so they will not obey the biblical God. See, without Jesus, we would have no idea what God is truly and fully like and this is one of the things that makes Christianity very unique. All these other religions, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, every world religion, it's all at the, at the, at the foundation of their religion is a false or, or at least severely lacking, severely incomplete understanding of who God is and what pleases God. See, all these other religions... They've, they've, they're built on the idea that you have to please God with your works. Christianity is the only one that says, nope, you can't do it. You need a substitute. You need somebody to take your place, not only to bear God's wrath against your sin, but to fulfill the requirements of the law in your place. All these other religions have a false understanding of God. And, and what flows from that? Disobedience. Disobedience. Maybe, maybe they'll, they'll think, you know, if I work hard enough, uh, God, if I'm good enough, God will let me into heaven. Or if I'm good enough, maybe God will reincarnate me as some type of uh, being that's higher than, than what I am right now. Whatever. All, these are all kinds of ideas that have no saving power whatsoever. No saving power Listen, if you take all the good works of humanity and pile them all together, you don't have enough righteousness stored up to save a cockroach, much less a sinner. Only the real Jesus, who is fully God, can save. So what? So what? That's always the question. So what does it mean to me? How does that impact my life? Well, there are at least two very uh, very practical applications of having the understanding that Jesus is fully God. First of all, if you understand that Jesus is fully God, you have the right motivation for obedience. And let's be very clear about this. We don't have the right biblically or definitively to say that somebody who is perfectly fine living in disobedience to God's revealed will, uh, will in his word believes in the real Jesus. If somebody is comfortable living in disobedience and there's never an indication that they turn from that sin or that they're convicted of that sin, we don't have the right to say that this looks like a person who believes in the biblical Jesus. I'm not saying that there won't be sin in our lives. There, there will be. I mean, I, I, if you just took my sin alone, it would be enough to fill this room and then some. Of course there's going to be sin in your life, but you can't claim to believe in Christ and simultaneously live comfortably in sin, never coming to an awareness of it, never being convicted of it, never coming to repentance or confession. And this is actually the the central theme in John's first epistle, in 1 John. No, if we believe that Jesus is truly, fully God then we must also understand and believe that he alone is worthy of our love and our highest, deepest, and fullest devotion and obedience. You know who believes that Jesus is fully God but doesn't extend their highest and fullest love and devotion to him? Demons. Demons. Why not? I mean, if they know that Jesus is fully God, why don't they obey him? Because of what motivates obedience. What motivates obedience? Love. Love does. A desire to obey, to bring one's will into an alignment with the object of their love. So obedience is the fruit and a loving faith, a loving belief in Christ is the root. A disobedient faith is a faith that is a powerless and worthless faith. There was a man in the middle of the second century by the name of Marcion, who believed that Jesus was different from the God of the Old Testament. I think a lot of people get the same impression today that these are, are that Jesus is totally different from God. You have one very well known megachurch pastor saying we need to get unhitched from uh, from the Old Testament because that's a totally different revelation of God. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant have no overlap whatsoever, and yeah, it's a ridiculous thought. That is not a biblical thought. But I do think that a lot of people have the same impression today. They think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of of wrath and a God of rules, a God who's kind of mean and who, who takes joy in, in punishing sinners while the God revealed in the New Testament is a God of grace. But no, it is the same God. It's the same, it's the same God. And, and by the way, Marcion was denounced as a heretic. It's called Marcionism. To this day, that's still taught in various places. I was taught that heresy in, uh, in college. Uh, it, it's still a heretical belief system. The God who commands obedience in the Old Testament does the same in the New Testament. What does Jesus say? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's how it works. Love motivates Obedience. So, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John fourteen fifteen. But the opposite of that statement is also true. If you do not love him, you will not keep his commandments. And if you don't know him, of course you're not going to love him. So if loving Jesus starts with knowing Jesus, and it does, then we understand that knowing, believing in, and loving Jesus gives us the right motivation in our lives for obedience It's what makes the difference between a bitter submission, which is no submission at all as far as God's concerned. It's what makes the difference between a bitter submission and a joyful submission. The the motivation, uh, when, when love is our motivation, then our submission to the Lord is a joyful submission. So that's the first That's the first practical benefit of believing that Jesus is fully God. The second one is that if we understand that Jesus is fully God, then we understand the significance and the power of what he came to do. And that is to die in the place of wretched sinners like you and me. The wrath that God reveals towards sin in the Old Testament, Jesus alone is capable of taking our place, of being our substitute. See, if Jesus is just another man or just another prophet, just another good teacher, then we may as well just eat, drink, and be merry because God's wrath still burns against us because of our sin. If Jesus is just another man, enjoy this life while you can because it's the closest thing to heaven that we're ever going to get to. God's holy and righteous justice demands that all sin incur his wrath because sin is ultimately a statement of rebellion against God, of opposition to who God is and what God loves and what God deserves and what God demands in the universe that belongs to him. All things belong to him. And here's what scripture tells us. Every one of us is born with the sin of Adam upon us. It's called original sin. Original sin. If a If a regular person who has original sin dwelling in them tries to take the wrath of God in our place as our substitute, they wouldn't be qualified. Why not? Because they themselves have to incur the wrath of God against their own sins. So then what hope do we have? Absolutely none if Jesus is not fully God. If he's not fully God, if he's just another man who was wrongly murdered by the, by the Roman government, one among thousands, we have no hope. But when we understand that Jesus is fully God, we understand that he alone can save. That he alone upheld the requirements of the law of God. He never sinned, not for one nanosecond was his will out of alignment with the will of God. And so he alone is able to stand in the place of wretched sinners like me, like you, taking upon himself the wrath of God that you and I should have incurred, the wrath that we deserved. But we need more than somebody to die in our place. Yes, we need somebody to die in our place, but we also need someone to live in our place. We need the righteousness of God imputed to us. And only Jesus, who was fully God, can impute or can transfer the righteousness of God to fallen sinners. Only someone who is fully God could save uh, or could live the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that we should have died, thereby saving us because he was our substitute. If we believe that Jesus is fully God, then we can understand why Jesus was capable and qualified to redeem a people for himself. That's what he came to do. He didn't come to free people from difficult circumstances in life. He didn't come to free people from various forms of human oppression. If that's what his purpose was, he would have overthrown the Roman Empire because they were oppressive. That's not what he came to do. Instead, he came to free us from the oppression and the obligation of sin. So when he says, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed, that's what he's talking about. You're free from the obligation to sin. You're free from the oppression of sin. Because Jesus is fully God, we understand that we were saved by God, from God, for God, and for his glory. That's two applications, but there's actually a third. I'll give you one more. Because Jesus is fully God, He alone is capable of fully satisfying every need, every desire in your heart. Every longing, every pain, He alone can satisfy and comfort us. God is infinite in nature, which means that Jesus is also infinite in nature right which means that he is a well an endless a bottomless well of infinite grace endless comfort boundless joy wisdom strength peace so who is this Jesus that John wants us to to know about John wants us to be faced with that question who is Jesus And he wants us to know the right answer to that question. So he's actually going to spend the next 21 chapters proving and helping us to see that Jesus is fully God. But the question isn't, who does John say that Jesus is? The question is, who do you say Jesus is? What good is he to you? And what could a greater understanding of Jesus profit you? What could you gain by a deeper understanding of him? Who do you say he is? And listen, I understand that it's, it's easier to ignore or at least procrastinate with difficult or important questions. I remember when I took the LSAT many years ago as I was uh, contemplating the idea of entering law school. Uh, and one of the pieces of advice for the test was if you don't know the answer, just skip it and come back if there's enough time. But with this question, who do you say Jesus is? You can put it off, exactly. You can put it off, but you don't know how much time you have left. You don't know how much time you have, and you will have to answer for it sooner or later. There's no getting around it. There's no escaping this question. There's no avoiding this question. You have to answer it before time expires and you don't know how much time you have left. If he was just another man, just another historical figure, eat, drink, and be merry while you can because there's no reason to have hope for what lies ahead. If he's just another good teacher, I guess learn what you can, but understand that You have sinned against God, both by nature and by choice, in thought, word, and deed. And his wrath against you has yet to be satisfied. But John doesn't tell us about a Jesus who is just another man. John doesn't want us to believe in a Jesus who was just a good teacher. John was there. We're talking about an eyewitness here. John was there, he saw Jesus, he heard Jesus' voice, he touched Jesus, he smelled Jesus, he believed in, and he loved Jesus. So who do you say Jesus is? Is he only a man? Is he he a, a mere mortal? Or is he fully God? If you have never answered this question, I would urge you to consider the claims being made here. And to join with Thomas who exclaimed, my Lord and my God. That's the right answer. If Jesus was fully God, if he was eternal, timeless, the full expression, the full revelation of who God is because he was very God himself. If all these things are true, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Because Jesus is fully God. He alone is worthy of our love and our highest, deepest, and fullest devotion and obedience. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the words that John has written for us, that he's recorded for us, that have been preserved flawlessly through the ages. The revelation that Jesus is fully God. And we pray, Lord, that we would be more fully convicted of this truth and that that would bear good fruit in our lives, that the faith that we we already have, if we already have it, would grow as we become more confident in this as we see the the practical aspects of this. But for those who have never answered this question, we pray for the eyes of their hearts to be opened. And we pray that they would be granted repentance and saving faith. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for sending your Son to redeem a people by taking your wrath that we deserved in our place as our substitute. And we pray, Lord, that that would change everything, change our perspective, change our behavior, give us a desire to obey because we have a right understanding for you, a right understanding of you and a love for you that desires obedience in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives.